Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, you are in the right place. Today's buzz, oh, let's look at a match. I'm not sure it's made in heaven yet. Analytics and the insurance industry. Are insurers dynamos, dinosaurs, or both? Maybe a little of everything. Let's get started. Along its paper-to-digital journey, the insurance industry has attained some sophistication in the use of analytic tools. But overall, sad to say, it's still somewhat of a laggard when it comes to adopting an integrated approach across the enterprise. How can they catch up? We're all rooting for them. We're all cheering for them. We want them to modernize. We want them to treat us like people. We want Want them to use the tools. One way they might use is to establish a BICC, a Business Intelligence Center of Excellence. But there are many other ways. We have a great panel today of experts who are going to help the insurers figure it out. And those of you not in the insurance industry, stick around because you might learn a lot about what's going on behind the scenes with your insurance companies. Aha! Isn't that something we'd all like to know? First on the panel, I'm very pleased to welcome Michael Bernaski. He's an independent management consultant working with financial services and insurance senior leadership teams. And Michael sent me the following quote. I'll just read a little part of it and then he'll expand. And he's quoting H.A. Simon, that's Herbert Alexander Simon, an American political scientist, sociologist, psychologist, professor, economist, most notably at Carnegie Mellon University. Good credentials. Here's the quote. In an information-rich world, The wealth of information means a dearth of something else, a scarcity of whatever it is that information consumes. That's a wow quote to open the show. Michael Bernaski, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing very well today, Bonnie. Thanks for joining me. So talk to me. You picked H.A. Simon. Tell me a little bit about why, and then let's relate this opening part of his quote to our topic today, insurance and analytics. Go ahead, Michael. Well, I think that uh, even though this quote is uh, 40 years old, uh, he really put his finger on the issue of the day today, uh, which is that people in their professional and personal lives are, are trying to figure out how to uh, deal with the poverty of attention. There's so much information that's out there um, that whether it be in our personal or professional lives, we're really looking to uh, make better use of our limited attention spans. And uh, clearly, uh, I call them the three A's, analytics, algorithms, and artificial intelligence are all tools that we have at our disposal uh, to you know, increase our individual and organizational attention spans. So would you say we have ADD across the board, and does this particularly apply to insurers? What do you think, Michael? You know, I think it's certainly broader than, in, than insurers. Um, I would say... Um, you know, the world is experimenting with how to deal with this information overload. Uh, I use the expression twidiot to refer to people who get their information <laughs> in uh, 100 and, what is it, 140 characters or less uh, coming yes. across Twitter. No offense to anybody, but... Um, that's okay. <laughs> you know, that's a, one way to deal with the information overload is to yeah. have, you know, more manageable sized chunks of data. Um, uh, the problem is you miss the story. Uh, with such mm-hmm. little bits of little bits of information, and so I, the world's experimenting with how to deal with it. Uh, in the insurance world, um, you know, we're dealing with that. Let's say in the auto insurance space, 
where drivers, I mean, it's, it's, it's not rare to see somebody on the road tweeting uh, or texting uh, mm-hmm. while driving their vehicle. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, they're trying to make use of their attention span. I often wish they'd pay more attention to the road. I think we all wish that, too. Very, very well point. Point well taken. Thank you, Michael. Let's turn to your co-panelist. It's Monique Hessling. She's a partner at SMA. Those of you scratching your head, that strategy meets action. We'd have, we've had other colleagues of Monique's on the show before. And Monique is quoting none other than Socrates. I think this is Socrates, perhaps Socrates' first time in absentia, of course, being on SAP radio. And the quote is, the only true wisdom is knowing you know nothing Welcome, Monique Kessling. How are you today? Oh, thank you, Bonnie. Um, I'm very well, thank you. Um, and I'm glad I'm the first one that picked Socrates this time. Um, it's also good to hear that Michael thought he had an old quote with his 40-year-old quote. I obviously beat that one, right, big time? <laughs> oh, by, by a couple of centuries, I think, yes. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. Um, but what I do, truly do believe is that what Socrates said this, uh, centuries ago is still true today, we all seem to know, to believe, and insurance carriers, amongst others, seem to believe that we know a lot, we have a lot of information, we have a lot of data, but when we work with them, we quite often figure out, and they know that very basic concepts in a lot of other industries, such as knowing who your customers are, knowing how many products they have with you, knowing which parts of your businesses they actually interact with, is still a big issue for insurance carriers to deal with very old and very many IT systems. So instead of focusing on telematics, Internet of Things, and all the sexy new sources of information mm-hmm. that we gather, there is still a lot of work to be done on core, you know, knowing the basics about your clients and your distribution partners. And I think it is truly important, as Okata said, that we need to understand what we don't know, and we don't know as much as we sometimes think we do. Um, and then, as I told you before, I'm a big Game of Thrones fan, and mm-hmm. one of the characters there, Egret, is a lady from the wild, not educated at all, um, being poo-pooed a lot for not knowing what she's talking about, and the only thing she always tells her lover, Jon Snow, is, you know nothing, Jon Snow, and and she tried to make the same point, right? You think you know it all, but you haven't lived by yourself in the wild, and you know way less about things that are important than you think you do. So that's why I picked this quote. Very good talking about relationships, which is how I I opened the monologue. Very, very interesting. Monique, this brings to mind, your conversation brings to mind a a quote that probably dates back to Socrates, I think. And the quote is, physician, heal thyself. So I would say, insurer, learn what you need to know. Heal heal the, the gaps and the issues and figure out what you don't know. But my question to you, Monique, is, is the insurance industry in particular, that's our topic today, are they aware that they're are things they do not yet know. They have to know that they're missing knowledge in order to go look for how to gain that knowledge. What's your perspective? Correct, and that's a, that's a very good question. And, and fortunately, I have been working in this industry for over 25 years now, so I have seen it go back and forth. And, and about 10, 15 years ago, we were all, I was a carrier at that point in time, we were all working very hard at implementing those um, basic parts of knowledge that we didn't have or insights, family relations, number of policies per client, you know, cleaning up data, uh, implementation of first CRM systems. Um, And we felt that we had it pretty well under control about 10 years ago. 
And then there was this this sort of gap or loop in in putting a lot, a lot of effort and work into it. And then what we have seen in, in in our research over the last two years, and also in our informal conversations with insurers, is that since they are trying to use new sources of information now, they are starting to understand that what they did 10, 15 years ago is just plainly not good enough. So they do know better now what they don't know than we did 10, 15 years ago. Thank you, Monique. So and I'm thinking... It's good news, and I'm thinking later on in the show during the roundtable, why don't we discuss who who the leaders of the insurance industry are, who is coming down the pike, that nasty M-word, the millennials. Will they bring Mm -hmm. more awareness of who does not know what to the game, or are we going to stay with whatever generation is currently the leaders? Will they continue to be the leaders? So a lot to talk about. Thank you. Last but, of course, not least, my return guest and the person who sparked this topic originally, it's Pat She's Senior Director in the Global Center of Excellence for Analytics at SAP and very pleased to announce that Pat recently released a brand new book, and I'm going to read the very long title, but you'll all get it, Applied Insurance Analytics, a Framework for Driving More Value from Data, Technologies, and Tools. Congratulations, Pat. And here's the quote Pat sent me, and the quote is from Anonymous. Ooh, somebody's hiding. (laughs) It's a great quote. The Stone Age was marked by man's clever use of crude tools. The information age has been marked by man's crude use of clever tools. I love these these uh, juxtapositions you send me. Pat Saparito, how are you today? I'm doing great, Patty. Thank you for joining me. And congratulations on the book. Are you excited? I am. It's been it was a, an interesting experience, and um, and it's been fun uh, talking to people as they're starting to find out about it. Wonderful. Good. So talk to me about this, this, this anonymous quote that's so interesting, juxtaposing the Stone Age and the Information Age. Talk to me. Right. So we have, we have all the, you know, all kinds of new and emerging um, technologies and tools, right? But all of those tools and the technologies in the world won't make your analytics successful without addressing the other key parts, which are basically the, um, the people and the processes. So you mentioned earlier around the BI competency centers, right, which are really meant to enable, really enable people. So it's one thing to have strategy. It's another to actually execute on it. And um, the bottom line is that those analytics need to be business-driven, they need to be actionable, and we need to show measurable results from them. Okay. So how far advanced are we going to get in getting uncrewed, man particular in this case, the insurance industry? What's it going to take to get uncrewed about the use of clever tools? The tools are there. They're widely available, correct, Pat? They correct. They come with, come with instructions. They're not that difficult to get. They're affordable, I assume. But if, if the insurance industry, in this case man, doesn't know how to use them well and with sophistication, I mentioned in my opening, how far far away are we from the day when the information age will be marked by man's clever use of clever tools? Is that in within sight, within view? Yes, absolutely. And I would say that it's. I'd be happy to see the clever use of the crude tools at this point, right, which is, <laughs> which is what we're talking about. So use the tools that you've got. And really what we're talking about is I call it raising the analytic IQ. You know, we talk a lot about data scientists, and that's great, but A, there aren't enough of them, and B, not everything mm-hmm. is a data science question, right? So what we're really talking about is um, having people in their everyday job really becoming analytically curious and 
and um, applying basically the tools that they have. And there are some, uh, there, there's a whole trend toward, toward self-service, and we'll talk more about that later, and what organizations can do to create this analytic culture. I love it. Analytic culture is good. Now, I have a cultural question to ask all three of my esteemed panelists, and you know what it is. What's in your cup today? Or what do you wish you were drinking after the show? And this is probably as analytical as my questions are going to get. So, Michael Bernaski, what's in your cup? Talk to me. Well, it's usually something boring. Today, it's black coffee. Um, usually, it's sparkling water or uh, black coffee. Uh, the more interesting part is my cups. I have a yes. wide collection of cups from my travels over the years, and uh, Lots of corporate apartments, lots of travels around the world, and uh, the cup is often more interesting than the drink. So what's the cup today? (laughs) Embarrassingly, it's a Mickey Mouse cup. (laughs) And what's the origin of that? Did it come from? Did Mickey Mouse personally? Yes, go ahead. My first boss would uh, keep a Mickey Mouse sticker on the back of his uh, tie to make sure he didn't take himself too seriously. So uh, I bought the Mickey Mouse Cup because of that. I love it. I love it. That's great. Thank you for sharing. I'm very pleased with that. Monique Hessling, what are you drinking today? You know, I'm probably equally boring. It must be the insurance industry. I'm drinking black coffee, too. Um, although this, this does come with a story. Um, my yes. husband is a bit of a coffee snob, and he felt when we moved to the United States that coffee here was way not at the same level as we were used to in, in the northern part of Europe. Mm-hmm. So he found this coffee shop where they sell beans, like raw unprocessed beans, Sumatra from Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And he takes them home and he roasts them himself and then he grinds <sighs> them himself. So this is very artisanal coffee. Um, however, the kitchen is a mess after every time we have it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, certainly, we'll keep this secret among the four of us. We won't tell a soul. I promise you, our listeners in over 225 countries, states, regions, neighborhoods, and and, uh, and kitchens will not say, nobody will say a word to your husband that we know his secret. By the way, Monique, you said it's black coffee. It, does it have a flavor? Does it have a brand? Or this is your husband's artisanal? Is there a name this to the bean? my husband's artisanal, and it, it comes in a, cu- in a cup to stick to Michael's theme that my two sons gave me and it has two ladies on it and a and a quote saying funny i don't recall i asked for your opinion so i'm not sure what that says about me but that's what it is <laughs> you know something after this com- this conversation and pat we'll get to you in a second uh, after this conversation i might have to change the question on the sap coffee break with game changers radio show not to what's in your cup but what's on your cup i, I <laughs> I think you two just retooled me in a different direction. Thank you. Pat Saparito, I can't ask you to top those, but tell me your story. What are you drinking? Clearly not. So what, so what I'm drinking is, I'm drinking iced tea this morning, but it's also my own blend. So I'm basically, it's a red zinger. Um, so some iced Ooh. red zinger tea with uh, with some orange juice in it. And uh, it's nice and healthy and, uh, and refreshing. Sounds like a little spark of vitamin C all at the right time. Thank you, Pat. Guess what? We're going to take a break. The three of you have certainly earned it, and you can have a sip of whatever is in your cup. Michael Bernaski, independent management consultant, Monique Hessling, partner at Strategy Meets Action, and Pat Saparito, senior director in the Global Center of Excellence for Analytics. That's a mouthful at SAP. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, in case you didn't guess that. You're listening to Coffee Break with Game Changers, and in case you're keeping count, I think we're up to episode live episode number 100. 
8.47, and today is Wednesday, August 20th, 2014. And those of you who are listening and want to share this show with somebody else who's not available right now, the podcast will be up a couple of hours after we're off the air, so be sure to send them in our direction at Voice America Radio, voiceamerica.com, the business channel, and look for the Coffee Cup logo. What else? We're going to take a break when we come back a lot more with, when it comes to analytics, our insurers, dynamos, dinosaurs, or a little bit of both. We'll be right back. Don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. Brad out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime anywhere and on any device www.sap.com when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network you're enjoying coffee break with game changers presented by sap you can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Now, let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. Here we are. We're back. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, and our topic today is the insurance industry. How are they doing with analytics? Are they in the dark ages? Are they somewhere in the middle, or are they dynamos, or are they they on the way to amazing results? Michael Bernaski, let's kick off the roundtable with you. We're going to go about 25 to 30 minutes nonstop, so put your seatbelt on. Let's start with some notes you sent me before the show. You're saying that advanced analytics have somewhat improved outcomes on a relative and absolute basis. Uh, Why don't you define relative and absolute basis for me and those who don't know what it is, and then let's relate that deep into our topic, the opening we've already started. So go ahead, Michael Bernaski, please. Um, Sure. You know, when when thinking about uh, the race that insurers are in, some companies have, you know, gotten out of the chute a little bit earlier on analytics and are starting to see a lot more of the results uh, than other companies. Uh, But they're all kind of running in the same direction. And... uh, their relative performance, you know, requires that that they keep running, that they keep moving um, in the analytics direction, becoming more fact-based, um, you know, asking better questions, uh, that type of thing. So the the absolute basis, uh, a lot of the benefits have really accrued, in my opinion, to the customers, uh, to the agents, uh, uh, to, to various parties and that the insurers themselves may not have seen as much of the benefits because they're all adopting the same innovations, um, Mm. albeit differently and at different paces. So they're changing the playing field, but they're all moving ahead as the playing field gets better. They're all there is what you're saying. They're coming along as a group. Absolutely. And I I think the other thing that the maturity of the discipline is having – 
is realizing is that I think people initially were looking for a small number of incredibly powerful insights through analytics, mm-hmm. and they're learning that it's, you know, if the opposite of the death by a thousand cuts is success by a thousand insights, um, you know, they're learning uh, that the smaller grained insights are as important, if not collectively more important than the big insights. So expectations are, are becoming, uh, you know, more accurate, better honed. Michael, a question comes to mind before we invite Monique and Pat to join this conversation. My question is, if the playing field is being moved and they're all level, how do insurers differentiate? That's the first part of my question. Second is, what does this mean for the customer? What's the outcome? Because anybody listening to the show, if they're not in the industry we know, especially if they're in North America, at least the United States, they have insurance. They're paying premiums. They care what their insurer is doing and what they're delivering. And is it timely? is it fair and is it, is it what they paid for? So what does all this do for the customer? You can answer either or both questions. Go ahead. You know, I'll start with the second one. I, you, you know, mm-hmm. I think the, the benefits have flowed largely to the customer uh, in, in many ways, uh, but it hasn't been cost-free. Um, you know, if mm-hmm. I pick a property casualty example, uh, some of the big insurers are using predictive modeling uh, very effectively to try to figure out, you know, who gets rate increases and who doesn't get rate increases. And uh, for the customer, there's if you're a better, higher quality risk, you're going to benefit through lower rates. However, if you're not a higher quality risk, um, you're going to have higher rates. And uh, the confusing part for the customer is sometimes the predictive model says, you know, your rates are going to go up, uh, but nothing has changed. So you're the same risk you were a year ago, albeit a year has passed. Uh, and the only thing that's changed is the insurer's model. Uh, and that can be confusing to a customer who sees a 15% rate increase, uh, despite the fact that they've had no losses and uh, mm-hmm. their exposures are still the same. So uh, progress, but uh, also some increased confusion. Yeah, and we don't like that too much. Okay, let's move on. Monique, thoughts on what Michael has opened up this uh, this box of information for us. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I have a couple of them, and, and a part of them I agree with Michael, and on part, unfortunately, I don't. Um, um, one is, yes, uh, the playing field has, you know, everybody's in the same playing field, and all insurers are working on this to a degree, hence moving forward. Um, what I start seeing is that, unfortunately, the truly early adopters of analytics in the insurance industry were people that put, were companies that put a lot of um, resourcing in data warehousing, hardcore data modeling, data scientists, BI units, and they created a fairly in, inflexible structure, which was the only way to do it 10 years ago. They're being leapfrogged or bypassed now by companies that started way later but have a much more intuitive um, trial and error small insights-driven BI environment. So it's it's very interesting to notice the split between the, the different ways how carriers deal with the art or the skill of analytics. Second thing I want to point out is, um, is twofold. If you look at the value to the consumer of analytics and business intelligence, first of all, we need to be very cautious with underwriting and applying analytics to individual risks because insurance is a large number game and the whole intent of the business is to take care of of, of risks for a group or, or a conglomerate of, of people or risks or companies. 
So the more we start individually pricing on yours or mine specific exposure, the further away you move really from the true intent of, of insurance, right? Taking care of risks collectively. So that is a bit of a concern that you see pop up around the world. Not too much in the United States. You see a lot of it in Europe. There are a lot of political conversations around that specific issue. The second thing I do agree with Michael on as we get more information and more analytical data available, people always believe that they are above average risk-wise. I give a lot of presentations. I do a lot of talks about telematics, which is the um, use of data collect and information collected by technology in and around a car and driving. When I sit it, when I talk to an audience, think about a room with about 400 people, and I ask them who is a better than average driver. 90% of the people will raise their hands, which is obviously statistically not possible, right? Mm-hmm. So they all expect uh, the insurance company mm-hmm. to reward them for their perceived better than average driving. And insurance carriers do that when they start getting into telematics and they tend to lower premiums until something happens or they adjust their model, as Michael just said, and then rates go up. And people mm-hmm. do not like that. It's marketing-wise a very difficult story to tell you, I'll pick on you, Bonnie, dear Bonnie, you might think mm-hmm. you're a better than average driver, but unfortunately you're not, you know. Um, <laughs> hurt hurt so, me now, hurt me, hurt me. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so we start seeing some fallout of that. We start seeing customers switching insurance carriers even more often than they did on auto in the United States and in, in England, yes. amongst other countries, for that specific reason. So. Interesting. I, I have a comment before Pat chimes in. I have a quick comment to you, Monique, and the panel. Um, I work from my home office. My car is lovely, but it's garaged. If I do 3,000 miles a year, it's a big deal. I'm paying a rate, a, a lowest cliff rate for auto insurance, and I'm sure many of our listeners may have the same issue, especially if they commute by public transportation to work and don't have a long driving around in their leisure time, if we have leisure time. Uh, and, and the only way... I would be able to get a lower rate for the the first level of premiums, and I pay a lot of money for my premiums for a garage car that rarely leaves the garage. The only way would be to put some kind of a device in the car that would allow the insurance company to monitor everywhere I go, everything I do, and every quarter mile that I drive as though I were a taxi. I said no. I said no. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad to pay the the higher rate for privacy. Monique, is this something that's new in the industry? Yeah, it's been around for a couple of years now, and, mm-hmm. and, and we and other companies have done a lot of research around it, and a lot of people feel like you feel, right? It's a bit of a big brother kind of approach to life, mm-hmm. um, and it seems to be a margin of about 30% in premium discount when it starts becoming interesting to people. Uh, most of the research has been taking place in, in the UK and in the United States, and in both markets, when companies start giving consumers discounts on their rates of in between 20 and 30%, people start signing up for it. So you could almost translate that into the price for giving up your privacy and access to where and when you go is about mm-hmm. 30% of your premium. So mm, that, that might make sense at some point in time. Well, think about it. Pat Seferito, chime in here. We've covered a lot of ground. What are your thoughts on how Michael started this thread and Monique's editions? Go ahead. Right. Well, I, I agree that I think that looking at the um, the thousand insights is is the way to go. Right. So what what really happens is that the analytics become so embedded into the into the processes, and not even just into the 
into, um, you know, our systems and applications, so the transactional applications, but into our mindset, right? It really becomes part of our DNA. Uh, and so that just, it, it just is part of uh, day-to-day working. Um, that to me is, you know, where it comes out, comes in the, uh, you know, in the aggregate. Um, but when we, when we switch over to the, um, to looking from the customer perspective, mm-hmm. um, what, what's a shame is that we have enough data. We certainly have enough information, and it's a matter of when do we start getting to really developing. And so I'm, I'm taking, I'm going to take umbrage with, um, you know, with, uh, with some of the comments around the products. Is that why can't we develop to actually personalize products? We have enough data. And certainly I understand the concept of, you know, obviously the law of large numbers. It's time to rethink that. It's time to really think about customized products based on behavior. And then, of course, Bonnie, to your point, you know, the individual Mm -hmm. customer is going to have to decide, is that worth it for them? If they're able to get products that are truly customized to them, then we need more information about them and to be able to do that. In some Mm -hmm. cases, we can use proxies for the data, certainly, you know, in um, broader behavior. But at some point, then um, the customer will, will need to become more of a participant in that. Interesting. Michael, Monique, chime back in. Yeah, I'd, I'd uh, piggyback on Pat's comments that uh, I, I think this is a challenge for analytics across industries. Um, I also spend time in healthcare and, and banking. And in healthcare, they deal with the problem of, uh, of N equals one, right, where a statistical study might say that a, a given intervention uh, is more or less effective than another intervention. And um, that's true with the sample that they used. However, when you come down to your child or your spouse or yourself, um, you know, there's unique attributes that uh, the study didn't consider. And you don't want medicine by class, right, where because mm-hmm. you match this model, um, here's the prescription for, for you. Uh, you want those individual circumstances to, to be considered. Um, and so I, I think Moni brings up a great uh, issue, but it's much broader than, than just insurance. It's really cross-industry. Um, we all want to believe we're idiosyncratic, right? And we all want to believe mm-hmm. that there's something unique about us. Um, and yet the, the law of large numbers that insurance harnesses requires us to, to think broadly about a pool of risks. Um, and so that's, that's the challenge. I personally agree with Pat that the, I think the innovators are going to give the feeling of mass customization uh, mm-hmm. uh, to their customers uh, by, by using the idiosyncratic insights and not treating everybody as if they're a member of a class. Just a small number in a big pool. Thank you, Michael. I think we're going to move on to uh, actually continuing on one of the parts of this thread we started, but I'm going to look at some notes from Monique Hessling at SMA, and let's go a little deeper. Monique says, insurers will use insights and analytics to develop new products, including concierge services and other make-my-life-easy customer offerings. But I'm adding one more talking point to that, Monique, before you jump in. You say ethics and morals around the principles of insurance versus the increasingly individual data they collect and its use will need to be agreed upon in societies. So let's dip our toe in the water of who gets to regulate this. Is there such a thing as ethics? Are there morals in insurance? Pardon me. Monique, why don't you start us off? Yeah, those those are two sides of the same coin, right? The two statements Mm -hmm. that you started with. Um, um, I do actually agree with Pat and Michael that on product development, it's very important and doable by now, fortunately, with increasing use of analytics and technology 
to customize or personalize products. And, and carriers are very successful doing that, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, on the pricing side and the underwriting acceptance side, you know, the more individualized you start pricing or deciding who to accept as a risk or not, you know, societies will have to decide if, if, if it's acceptable to exclude, you know, people with conditions or homes in bad shape or people with certain credit scores and all their data points that we tend to utilize nowadays. And it's very interesting when you, when you read um, big newspapers and, and look at economic situations that those issues are perceived different in different groups and in different countries around the world. So mm-hmm. I, I think that that does still need some hashing out. Um, um, it is a very important topic the more we get into individually used data. And um, I think you, Bonnie, you touched on it earlier when you said that you have a very hard time giving up your driving data, which is probably not even the most sensitive data companies might have about you, right? There's financial right. data out there, there's health data out there. Very there true. a bit intrusive, but there's worse data about, more intrusive <laughs> data out there. I wouldn't say worse, more intrusive data out there. So, um, so we really need to take a step back and say, what are we comfortable with as societies and yeah. what is it worth it? Um, so that's where I would like to leave it on the ethics and moral side. It, it does pop. I see it increasingly pop up in big conversations. So it is okay. a topic that people have an interest in. Thank you, Monique. And what about make life easy customer offerings? What would those be? Just uh, dip our toe in the water for this one, so that Michael and Pat can chime in on their point of view. What what make life easy would they give me or you? Yeah, what I have seen recently is that insurers start and let's stick to consumer products. Insurers start uh, individualizing offerings mm-hmm. for their potential clients or their clients. And I'll give you two examples. One is that, maybe three, one is there is a handbag insurance out there for women that carry their whole life around in those very big handbags that we all carry around right You're now. You're kidding. And the You're carrier, kidding. And the carrier by now offers the carrier, and the, the one that's offering this offers besides if it gets lost or stolen or destroyed, Besides replacing the handbag and the contents, it also takes care because it has that data. You gave it at a point in time of canceling your credit cards, so, you know, putting the paperwork in to renew your driver's license or get a duplicate uh, and deal with all the hassle that tends to come with losing your handbag or getting your handbag stolen. Another example is in telematics, in the car-related technology, that besides using the data they have now to figure out when you're driving and how long you're driving and where you're driving, carriers also started offering discounts for restaurants around um, the route that you're driving, and they do that proactively. So if, if if it looks like you're on the New Jersey Turnpike, and they think you're having, they see you have been driving for about two hours. They ping you and say, "Look, might be time for a coffee. Here you have a one dollar discount on a Starbucks or so." Mm-hmm. Or you have been on the road for eight hours in North Dakota. There is a motel coming up. You know, for sixty bucks they will reserve you a room. Those kind of things. And people seem to value that. They're not ready in most countries, almost all countries, as far as I can see to pay a lot of additional premium for those luxuries, but they are very great retention tools because they allow the insurance company to have a lot of contact points with their customers and to provide some true measurable services. So, 
Thank you, Monique. Very interesting. I learned something. Pat Saparito, thoughts about, if you want to talk about the ethics and morals about insurance, the availability to insurers of our personal data, and or the uh, use of analytics and insights that we ultimately need to give them to help them customize ease-of-life products. Go ahead, Pat. Right. I'll I'll take the, um, you know, I'll I'll veer away from the affordability and accessibility at this point, because that becomes more of a political issue, right? I'll take on more of the the perspective of the, um, I'm going to call it really the customer-centric perspective, which is really, and I think those are two great examples of insurers who have actually put themselves in the, really thought about who is that end customer, right? What's the persona of that person, and what do they really care about? So not just about, the, you know, to the point of being the handbag itself, but it could even be identity theft. It's what are all of the things that could happen, that, what are all of the risks, and which ones do we really want to, to help them with? Um, and so I think the same thing is, you know, taking it again from, you know, what's really my role, what am I doing is, is, when I'm in my car? It's not just the insurance of the car, but what are all the conveniences? And I think that that is a great way for, we talked a lot about big data, right, and how to make mm-hmm. um, value out of the data. And it's really thinking about if you're, people are thinking through new use cases and thinking about new new products, um, it's about thinking in that context and thinking through, frankly, the whole ecosystem, if you will. It's not just the insurance. It's the um, not just the typical, um, you know, customer, the uh, broker, um, however they're purchasing the insurance and maybe even mm-hmm. going out further in the ecosystem about the reinsurer, the regulator. But thinking about, you know, what are the optional partners around that? And, again, that customer-centric, um, you know, there's a whole approach um, which is called design, design and visual thinking that does mm-hmm. that, that's basically an empathetic approach to the, to the customer. So I think that's the way to go, and that's the way to make value out of the data and the analytics. Pat, I, I, I have to say this. The use of the word empathetic in the same context of we're talking about insurance companies. I, I'm sorry. That just, pow, just just blew up for me. Okay. Uh, Michael, chime in on this one, and then we're going to go to a topic for Pat. Go ahead, Michael. Thoughts? You know, I'll, I'll try to relate the two questions. Uh, you yeah. know, I think the, the second question, uh, the insurance company can either support or encourage certain behaviors uh, of their insured. Um, you know, uh, and there is an ethical dilemma in that, right? Different people have a different appetite uh, for machines to guide their behavior. Um, some are quite paranoid about it. Uh, some, like myself, are, are quite comfortable with it. Um, but I think, you know, the ease of life, if, if you were to uh, uh, monitor where my eyes are, where my uh, eyeballs are focusing while I was driving, and uh, have the car adjust the level of assistance it's providing mm-hmm. me uh, as a driver uh, because it has a measure of my attention span, uh, to tie back to Mr. Simon. Um, mm-hmm. y- you know, to some people, that would be incredibly invasive uh, in, their, in their life. Um, I bought the Google Glass uh, last fall, and ah. uh, it, it's interesting to note uh, you know that that literally Google might know where I'm looking, uh, which could get me in some trouble. I suspect uh, has an odd uh, habit of taking a picture when I'm in the restroom, which um, <laughs> I've yet to figure out how to completely control. But that aside, you know that we're rooting for you. We're rooting for you. <laughs> but, you know the, the potential of the technology is is so high there. Yeah. Um, you know to help us strike a balance, uh, a better a better balance, and yet there's an ethical question. Of you know, how do you go too far? How do you not go too far? 
That's true. That's true. How do we go too far with what they're using it for and what they're giving us back and where do we meet in the middle? So we're happy about it. Thank you, Michael. I want to turn to Pat Saparito for one last conversation thread before we take a break and go into the predictions round of the show. And if this gets going with a lot of energy, we won't even take a break. We'll go straight to predictions, but I'll let you all know. Pat said in her notes to me, key analytics trends of big data and the Internet of Things are creating increased demand for an- analytics and insurance, which presents a number of challenges. And Pat talks about data management, business value, and analytic IQ. Pat, why don't we dive into this briefly? Uh, give us your thoughts on this, and then we'll ask Monique and Michael to chime in as well. Go ahead, Pat. You know, so, so one of them is around the data management. And it's not just the data management and the data quality. It's about the integration and it's about, um, you know, the, about the users understanding the data, right, and provisioning mm-hmm. it. And I, wanna, I don't want to get too technical, but from a business perspective, they need to understand what's the meaning of the data and make it available for them, right, so that they can actually apply it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the uh, – so that's one piece of it. The other major piece, I think, is what I, what I was calling the analytics IQ, right? And it's really about – it's not just about the tools. The tools are getting easier and easier to use. It's really about improving people's skills to be able to use the tools and um, and also creating what I call that analytic culture, meaning that we need to lead and it needs to be, um, you know – we say that we're a decision-driven organization. A lot of people have this, uh, you know, in their mission statements, et cetera. It's one thing to have it in the mission statement. It's another thing, as I say, to walk the walk instead of, you know, uh, instead of just talking the talk. And so it's got to start from the top, and it's got to be reinforced in terms of, um, you know, providing um, analytic sandboxes, hand-holding, communities of practice, whatever you want to call it, to help people be able to um, uh, to apply things in their job, not just for what I called, you know, the analytic elite. You know, everybody's talking about the data scientists. Mm-hmm. You know, this has to be for the underwriters and the claims people and, um, you know, um, not just, so again, I think the actuaries kind of fall in that uh, almost in the analytic elite area, right? It's not just the marketing mm-hmm. statistician and, and the actuaries. It's got to be for everybody. Okay, uh, Pat, let's take this a little bit deeper and talk. I want to bring this into a comment I made earlier in the show. Who is leading the charge for this to hit uh, what I think you're saying is bring these analytics into the trenches, the people on the ground, the people right. who are more customer-facing, not just at the top echelons of the industry, but people who can really use it to benefit not only their jobs but the customer in their customer-facing roles. So what kind of generational stratification might there be? Would this be people who have been working? insurance for 20, 30, 40 years? Would this be something that Gen Y and Gen X bring this love of data science, I'll call it, and they're saying, yeah, give me the analytics. I can use it. I can figure it out. I can apply it. Who's going to be the one to do all of this? Right. Are we seeing a change, a change in the echelons mm-hmm. of the insurance agent, in, industry? Talk to me. Yeah, and I think, um, frankly, I think that for, for Gen X and Gen Y or the millennials, you know what, they're not even thinking analytics. It just is, right? It's, ah. I, I think how I use my cell phone and how Great I point. listen to, to everything, it's just there. Um, but I think that, so we're, so I think you've got kind of the mid, middle chair maybe folks that are a little bit older than that, right? And it's, and those are the people that we need to help with, um, you know, encouraging their, um, you know, creativity. People who have great deep skills and are going to mentor, 
um, those newcomers who just think intuitively, but they need help about putting it into a context. And I think that that's where um, that's where maybe um, the folks that are a little bit you know older um, are. But and the last point I wanted to make is about um, you know you need an analytic cheerleader uh, essentially at the top echelon. Um, because you want to continue to make investments as they need to be made. And that, to me, is you know what we're calling the chief analytic officer. And I have to throw it over to Michael at some point, because Michael was the first chief analytic officer I had ever met. And this was, I don't know, I'll let him talk about how long ago it was, but at Safeco, and this was probably, I'm going to say, God, it might have been eight years ago, first time I'd heard the term, and I remember asking him, Michael, what does that mean? So, um, <laughs> so we know what people are saying it means today, and I'd love to hear from Michael about Michael, um, you're being summoned. Talk to us, Michael no, Bernaski. No, Go ahead. 2006 or so, and, um, you know, I would say that the, the uh, title itself was uh, really meant to be a sponsor for improved quality of decision-making. Uh, I worked for a, a very forward-looking CEO, uh, Paula Reynolds, at the, at the time. And, um, you know, what she really wanted to accomplish was to improve the quality of organizational decision-making. Mm-hmm. And we, we dealt with the issues of how democratic to make the process, how inclusive to, to make the process. Um, but back in those days, there, there was certainly a feeling that the expertise was so limited uh, that we had to, you know, be a central planner for for analytics and and use our scarce resources. Um, I sit on the board of, of Westfield Insurance. They've done a fantastic job uh, with with analytics, and uh, they've done it in a very democratic way. Um, you know, in, including a lot more people in the process. And so, part of my learning curve has been, you know, what I thought back then uh, was that the scarcity of resource was was the uh, dominant issue, uh, found out that it's, uh, you know, the thousands of imaginations that you could bring uh, to data analytics uh, was, was where the real power was. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Thank you for that. And uh, Monique Hessling, you want to chime in on this? Yeah, I agree with that, that, um, that it, it's going to be a little bit harder to get people that, that are slightly older and have been in their roles for a long time to easily adopt the, um, um, analytics. But I think one of the key issues there is that we just have not been able to give them the tools and the infrastructure to make it easy, right? If you looked at over the last 10 years, most analytical tools did require you to have a fairly decent understanding of statistics and, and be not totally a data scientist, but awfully close to. So fortunately, what I see in the market right now is that there are a whole bunch of companies that have initiatives, um, technology companies that have initiatives around or startups or work with startups to create easier tools to make analytics almost intuitive and part of the daily work stream so that people don't have to think about it. And I believe that's the way to go. Visualize it in such a way that it's easy for people to understand which decision would be the most logical one. Um, make it very easy to run what-if scenarios without having to do any statistical modeling. Those kind of capabilities will drive the acceptance of analytics in regular workflows, I think. Oh, go ahead, Michael. Go ahead. You know, Mm -hmm. if I might, I I, I think there's kind of an excessive focus on tools, uh, sort of a pet peeve of mine, so I couldn't contain my comment. Um, But, you know, I I think that the cultural change uh, of moving towards more fact-based decisioning, you know, has to embrace better qualitative analytics and better quantitative analytics. Uh, Qualitative analytics is the 
sort of more literary sister of quantitative analytics. And while I, I agree that better tools can help the process, um, actually, I think it's better thought processes that, that things have to start with. Um, and, and so I, I hate to see tools become the focus uh, because as a you know, consultant myself, I've seen lots of applications of the tools and the projects themselves don't re- achieve the outcomes um, you know, without the other aspects of change. Pat Saparito, I know you have something to say. By the way, we're skipping the break. This is too good to stop, and we only have eight minutes till the end. So let's continue this conversation, and then we'll shift into the crystal ball round with your predictions. Pat, thoughts about uh, what Michael just said, the challenge there uh, about reporting, dashboards, visualization, yeah. exploration, or understanding the core, the foundation, before you get to the tools? What's yeah, I mean, I, I think it goes back to, I mean, I, I do think that the, the tools are there, and they're becoming so intuitive. And, and I, I understand not wanting to focus on the tool and that the reality is it's about the application um, of the analytics and about the uh, of the data, right? So I think we've all said it uh, maybe a, a, a different number of ways, but it's about applying it really, and it's about it's it to the point it needs to be part of just its second nature. I just go back to it becomes almost um, almost part of your intuition, frankly. But it's that, but it, you don't we don't want them to just go with intuition, right? We want them making fact based decisions, but becoming so that it's automatic that you just automatically take a look at the data and what there. And whatever tool is the easiest for you to use, and I think that's, um, and maybe it's just uh, so, but, but making, taking, um, you know, taking advantage, right? So to my, to my point earlier, that's why it's all about um, change, it's about change management, and it's about culture. So it's not just the tools. Good point. Guess what? I'm going to do some change management here myself, and we're going to go right in headlong into the, uh, yeah, we have plenty of insurance for this. We're going to dive headlong into the deep end of the pool and go into predictions round. I'm going to give you each exactly two minutes because we're tight on time. We've got seven minutes till we end the show. So, Michael Bernaski, let's circle back to you. What do you think is coming down the pike? Let's go toward the year 2020. I like that because it's hindsight, and I like the way Baba Wawa says it. I will not try to imitate her. So what do you think will happen? with analytics and insurance? Are they going to be more dynamos than dinosaurs? Are there still a lot of preparation and thought processes that go into it? What about the change of culture in the industry itself in terms of who's working and who's leading? Whatever you want to say, two minutes, predictions, Michael Bernaski, go. Well, I would I would say 2020, uh, Monique's quote comes to mind. I have to remind ourselves that we know nothing. Um, but, uh, you know, if I had to guess, I would say two things. One is that in the realm of analytics, um, you, we're going to see um, smaller companies that are more nimble and who can action analytics more effectively uh, really play a more more dominant role. Uh, I personally view that the insurance industry as a whole will uh, encourage um, diversity um, amongst the insurance companies and that infrastructure will be separated out. And there'll be an infrastructure industry in insurance, and there'll be a uh, insight uh, dimension. Uh, you know, smaller companies who focus and develop really proprietary insights and become deep experts uh, in a particular area of customer or area of risk. Um, the other prediction I'd make is just regarding, uh, you know, risk itself. Right? Um, there tends to be a phenomenon where. As we reduce risk in one area, people find a way to add risk in another area. So our cars have become so safe with 
um, you know, collision detection and anti-lock breaks mm-hmm. and those type of things that people feel more comfortable uh, tweeting or texting uh, while they're while they're driving. And so, you know, additional risk taking tends to come in. And I, I think that that's going to continue to happen. I think that, um, you know, the more attention span that we free up uh, from routine activities, uh, that people are going to supplement those and, and those additional activities are going to create some additional risks. Um, so I think the business of risk is going to continue to be an exciting place to be uh, for the market, but I don't think scale is going to be as important in the future. And uh, I would love to hear Pat's thoughts on this, but the, the big insurance companies, they have so much data, so much so large a sample, uh, but they struggle, in my opinion, to really act on it. Um, and that's where I think the smaller player you know, might be more nimble and, and effective. Thank you, Michael. It's time to move to Monique Hessling at SMA. Monique, I can give you 90 seconds. Go. Perfectly fine. I uh, actually do think the large carriers will be at an advantage in 2020 because, as Michael said, they do have vast amount of data. And I think over the next couple of years, I'm an optimist. They will figure out a way to access it and to um, gain insights off it. And since they have all the history, they will be very well positioned to service their clients in the way how they want to be serviced. I also think that in addition to what they already know, they will add data and insights driven by mobile, digital, or Internet of Things kind of sources, and they have the skill to utilize it in the best way possible, put that on top with visualization and analysis tools that require huge processing capacity to deal with unstructured data that they get into. I think the large carriers will be very well positioned to, um, to actually keep and potentially gain market share. Thank you, Monique. Fast and furious. Appreciate that. Pat Saparito, I saved 90 seconds for you. Almost two minutes. Go ahead. Okay. And so I think the leaders today will still be the leaders, especially the progressives of the world. Um, But I think that there will be new leaders emerging, and not necessarily from the smaller companies necessarily. I think it will come from non-traditional companies who are going to come into the space um, from, you know, uh, from adjunct kind of um, spaces. So it might be the car manufacturers, et cetera. Um, I think it's also that the analytics are going to become more embedded into the business processes. So we're not even mm-hmm. going to think analytics; we're just going to think business process. And then I, I would, and, the, and there's certainly be more real time, right? They'll be really embedded right into the day day to day processes. And then the last thing is that I think IT's role is going to become one. It has been become, and it's going to continue to move into one more of provisioning and being the custodian, the data, and making it available for um, for everything. Um, as opposed to necessarily doing the development. Thank you, Pat. Thank you all. Got me right on time where we need to be. I've got a minute and a half to wrap up here. Let's do some gratitude. Michael Bernaski, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your words of wisdom. It's a pleasure. Monique Hessling at SMA, I'd like you to send my regards to Deb Smallwood and Mark Brading, both of whom have taken their turns in the hot seat on SAP Radio at one point or another. So please tell them I said hello and uh, delighted to meet you, and I hope you'll come back. And Pat Saparito at SAP, all good wishes with the book. I hope it's very very successful for you in a labor of love. Hope it pays off down the road. And thanks for sharing your words of wisdom on this very important topic. I want to do a shout out to Brad and the Business Channel team for getting us on the air. And I want to tell you what's coming up next week, Tuesday, 9 a.m. Pacific, Financial Excellence with Game Changers. And Wednesday, we'll be right back here with another live edition of Coffee Break with Game Changers, Wednesday, 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 Eastern, where I am. And the topic next week on Coffee Break is fighting fraud. 
predictive technology to the rescue question mark question mark question mark it's part three and talk about risk and fraud and all that good stuff yes and there comes that word predictive again we're going to circle back and see what's new in that land so i want to thank everybody for being my guest today michael monique and pat wonderful experience thank you again and here's my call to action fasten your seatbelt. what are you waiting for go out and be a game changer today. Bonnie D. Graham signing off for another live edition of Coffee Break with Game Changers presented by SAP. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week. 